Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So I wanted to address the connection between social contract theory and moral motivation. And I realized as I was glancing through the paper a bit ago that one thing I don't make clear till the very end, and maybe I need to state that before I really jump into it, is you know, I think there is some positive value to social contract theory. I don't want to put this theory up there just to reject it. I think there's reasons for its viability. I think there's there's to a real extent, reasons for its necessity in our culture, all right? But there's some deficiencies in terms of moral motivation that I want to focus on, and I think God and religion can remedy that. So that will become clear in the final section that this is not just meant to be an all-out attack on social contract theory. All right, there are several possible connections between God and morality, including God as the goal of our moral acting, God as the metaphysical foundation of moral principles, and the role that God and by extension religion may play in the context of moral motivation. In this paper, I address this last connection and argue that societies that employ a social contract justification of government and social morality can survive long-term only if a majority of their populations are religious practitioners. More precisely, even if we grant for the sake of argument that a society can justify its laws on the naturalistic basis of rational self-interest, such rational self-interest is an insufficient source of motivation to comply with the, law, with the law, at least in terms of society at large. By contrast, religion, particularly insofar as it affirms a transcendent reality or being to whom we are all responsible, does offer adequate motives for society's sustainability. As is probably obvious from the above formulation, I think that a variety of religions, religions can in principle fulfill the motivational requirement. However, for the purposes of the context, um, I will cast my argument in terms of theism in general and Christianity in particular. I will proceed by first summarizing social contract theory with a particular, particular focus on the role enlightened self-interest performs within it. The second section provides arguments that self-interest fails as an adequate source of motivation for the long-term viability of the state. And then lastly, I address the ways in which religion can offer motives sufficient for the promotion of a healthy state. All right, so to the first section. Modern social contract theory begins with Hobbes, who asked us to imagine human relations in the absence of governmental structures. This state of nature is a brutal environment in which the factors of human selfishness, human equality, and limited resources combine to produce a state of war of all against all. The grand irony of these circumstances is that each person's total freedom, or the freedom from any restriction whatsoever, leads to each person's inability to realize any of his self-interest goals. Consequently, the denizens of the state of nature agree to a social contract where each person sacrifices some of his freedom, particularly the freedom to kill and steal, etc., in exchange for the same sacrifice on the part of everything else, on everybody else. The state, or the Leviathan, in turn, is created with the near absolute power in order to enforce this agreement. And some, while it, it is within the self-interest of each person to agree to the contract, so that his long-term self-interest goals 
may be better achieved. Hobbes is quite clear that self-interest constitutes the baseline motive through each of these phases. Each of us should obey the law of the state because it is in our self-interest to do so. If we are ever tempted to break the social contract, the absolute power of the state should deter us. Turning to John Locke, and ultimately I'm doing this for the sake of setting up John Rawls, that's the real person I want to focus on here. Locke softens some of Hobbes' harsher elements, but endorses a similar social contract account, maintaining that self-interest, a self-interested basis of government um, is still the way to go, but there are some moral elements even in the state of nature. But there will be enough people in the state of nature who basically try to take your property, who don't respect the natural rights, and so the state needs to be created to protect those things in a similar way to Hobbes. Now on to the, what I consider to be the, the key figure here. We find the most influential 20th century formulation of so social contract theory in the work of John Rawls. And why I consider this Rawls important is he's not always characterized in straightforward social contract terms. Sometimes you almost get a deontological sense from people promoting Rawls, and indeed there probably is, there's elements of that, but at the end of the day, it is rational self-interest or selfishness that, that plays the pivotal role in his account. Um, Rawls introduces the veil of ignorance to better clarify the nature of the laws to which self-interest binds us, or perhaps better stated, the veil better clarifies the meaning and extension of what we mean by rational self-interest. The veil forces each of us to choose the laws to which we bind ourselves via the social contract by blinding us to our actual place and standing in society. We do not know our sex, natural talents, economic situation, color, religion, etc. We only know that we desire to promote our own interest. Our self-interest self mandates that we select two basic principles, the principle of equal liberty for all, basic rights for everybody compatible with those same rights for everyone else, and the difference principle that society can have some economic inequalities provided it benefits everyone. Um, and we ought to live by these principles in our actual lives since it is our rational self-interest that commits us to them in the first place. All right, the upshot of this social contract tradition, of which the US Constitution and to a lesser extent some European constitutions are members, in terms of the foundation of social morality and associated moral motivation is that each person's rational self-interest suffices ultimately both for a basic epistemic grasp of social moral principles and the motivation to conform to these principles. I contend that the trajectory of this account points away from long-term viability. In terms of both the US and Europe, the success that social contract political justifications have enjoyed and continue to enjoy is in large part due to the influence of theistic and in particular Christian religions in the lives of the citizens. As our culture grows increasingly non-religious and at the same time self-interested, I contend that we, that we are beginning to see the inadequacy of irrational self-interest as the key basis of moral motivation. Um, in other words, the success that social contract theory has had, I think, is in some part accidental. I think it's because of these external influences of the Christian religion that have actually contributed to the to society's stability. And as we see that latter factor decrease, I expect trouble. 
Empirical evidence supports this claim. Rates of violent and sexual crimes increased dramatically over the last half century, with a bit of a decrease in the last 15 years. Moreover, and you know, obviously Steubenville itself is probably a good representation of, of a snapshot into that as well with the, the latest events. Um, moreover, cities and towns have decreased community bonds, evidenced I maintain by increased number of incidents such as the victims of misfortune or crime not being helped by their fellow citizens. And perhaps most importantly, in terms of the US, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world with over 1% of adults currently in jail. Now, I don't know what the rate is, I should have looked this up, of the rate of people who have at some time served prison time, it's, but obviously it would be much higher. Um, that's just people currently in jail. All right, now I do not mean to romanticize the past. I fully understand that there were violent crimes and egregious failures of moral motivation in centuries past and in decades past. Moreover, my argument does not depend on the empirical data, which as it stands indicates only a correlation between the decline of religion and loss of moral motivation. Because of this, I will give philosophical arguments that aim to show the deficiencies of rational self-interest as the basis of social morality, which if successful, provides good reasons for contending the relation above is not just correlative, but actually a causal one. All right, so on to those arguments. I think the most general ob objection to self-interest as a sufficient moral motive pertains to the distinction between self-interest as such and rational self-interest. There is no problem with the conceptual distinction between the two. However, if the source of moral authority is thought to be only my own self-interest, I can override that authority by citing other self-interest considerations. To put this in terms of the question of motivation, there are a variety of reasons why the distinction would seem to evaporate or leave the agent in a position where his actual desire is inconsistent with what enlightened self-interest demands. Based on my experience with hundreds of students discussing this point, they respond to this problem with a great big, so what? In other words, if all they have in front of them is their own rational self-interest, they will say, I'm not going to follow that. I don't care. I want to do this. In other words, it's not a strong enough motive to get them to do what they are supposed to do. Um, consider the following situation. Peter, and that's just a coincidence that I picked Peter there. Where is Peter? Sorry about that. Um, Peter Colosi does desire the social <laughs> does desire the social stability and security that comes from the social contract. However, Peter realizes that he is in a position to take a large sum of money from Ceiling Mart and in all probability to get away with it. His self-interest continues to desire that the rest of society uphold their end of the bargain and by doing so safeguard the social stability he wants. So if he can, reason, if he can be reasonably sure that they will continue to act toward social stability, what reason does he have not to steal? The obligation that results from self-interest, even rational self-interest, seems too thin to affect his behavior here, at least in his own mind. Secondly, the, dy the dynamism between self-interest and moral motivation would seem to fade the older one gets. For the social contractarian, we engage in the practice of morality only because it is in our personal interest to do so. So for instance, if the government were to collapse and send us back into the state of nature, all bets are off. Total freedom, uninhibited by moral consideration, wins the day. 
But even without such a governmental collapse, morality, moral, morality is tolerated, not relished or cherished. In a stable society, a young person may see that it is indeed in his long-term self-interest to promote the social order. But as he ages, if self-interest is his only moral motive, he will have less reason to participate in morality. Long-term goals are no longer achievable due to the inevitability of death, not the most optimistic point, but fortunately for morality, there is another trend relevant to aging that I think saves us. One is more likely to become religious the older one gets, which will ultimately tie into my overall argument to be considered in the next section. Never, nonetheless, if we focus only on moral motivation based on self-interest alone, aging adds one more dimension to the unsustainability of pure social contract theory. While I think an analogous argument could be made of any reckless young person who simply has no regard for future goals, due to the space considerations, I will move to the next objection, which is even if we continue to focus only on an external social morality and not on issues such as the role a substantive good of human nature might play beyond that external dimension, the structure of social contract theory seems to leave to the side important aspects of the moral domain such as helping others or seeing oneself as integrally connected to the community. This, of course, is a common communitarian critique, but it is worth reiterating in the context of moral motivation. In terms of mo motivation, the problem could be summed up with the word minimal. In terms of self-interest, even, even the best of rational self-interest, a person is only motivated to do those things that fulfill the social contract and absolutely nothing more. Recall that morality is more or less a necessary evil. I might see that performing certain unattractive actions in no way promote my selfishness in the short term, but are necessary for my long-term interest. But if an act such as helping a fellow subway passenger who is being victimized is not necessitated by the contract, then I have no reason to perform it. If this motivational structure were the norm, it is difficult to imagine that a society could survive for more than a few generations the bonds holding society would simply break apart. What objections might these, how much time do I have? You have uh, expended 14 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> so you have 20 minutes remaining. Okay. I wasn't expecting such precision, but thank you. <laughs> what objection might these arguments raise? The main argument might be that I am being unfair to social contract theory. Any of these arguments could be adapted as a case against any naturalistic ethical theory. In response, I am not sure that that is the case, but even if it was so, the prevalence of social contract justification of both governmental institutions and social morality in our society make it a fair particular target. Going back to the original response, it might depend on what one means by naturalistic. But if Kantianism, eudaimonism, and even non-egoistic versions of utilitarianism are not susceptible to the arguments above, it is because they have a more substantive conception of duty, objective well-being, or social utility that serves as the foundation of motives for everyday behavior. My core objection to social contract theory is that self-interest is not an adequate basis. So however you might shape it, Self-interest is just too thin of a concept to ground long-term, morally upright behavior. That being said, I think any account of social morality has improved chances of practical success if God and religion constitutes a basis of why one should be moral. And this brings me to the last <clears throat> section of the paper, focusing on how God, and by extension religion, 
um, or I really should say religion and by extension God, can offer motives sufficient for the promotion of the state. There are two ways that this last section could go. First, I could argue that we ought to reject any contractarian thinking for social morality and replace it with some other moral theory altogether. From a, more, from a more ideal perspective, this option is attractive. However, if we wish to be practical and realistic, we should admit that social contract justification for morality has, at least for the time being in our society, has won the day. And therefore, if we have any chances of improving society, we should basically work within that framework if possible. Um, it is going to be the second approach I use in the following arguments. So this goes back to my first point that, again, I don't want to just reject social contract theory. Given its stature, can we work within it to improve it from a theistic perspective? And I think these are some reasons why we should. To my first suggestion, which we could call the Pascalian defense, the possibilities of eternal reward and eternal suffering serve as excellent correctives to the shortcomings of earthbound self-interest discussed above. Mentioning each of those three arguments in turn, the line between self-interest and rational self-interest is much more clearly defined if you have an afterlife component. It is irrational to act upon raw self-interest in any circumstance that involves acting contrary to the, to the law because to do so in a theistic perspective would to risk eternal damnation. All right, so this changes the equation. It doesn't necessarily change the structure. I'm still acting for just pure self-interest, but it definitely adds moral weight to not breaking the law. With respect to the second issue of the decreased importance of following social morality the older one gets, the possibility of hell flips the dynamism on its head. The older one gets, the closer he gets to death, and therefore the greater motivation he has to follow moral precepts in a theistic context. Lastly, the prospects of heaven and hell reinforce the riskiness, if not pure folly, of moral minimalism. Eternal consequences cannot be taken so lightly. In sum, the afterlife or the possibility of an afterlife shores up all of the motive-based deficiencies of finite terrestrial self-interest that we just discussed in the second section. Social contract theory alone falls into another trap not discussed above. If self-interest is the sole basis of our acting, we cannot help but to treat every other person as a means to our own end. The more radical contractarian such as Hobb contends each of us is determined by nature to be egoistic. Most others, however, either suspend judgment on the matter or claim that we are not so solely determined, that altruism is possible. Um, let us assume that Hobbes is wrong and we are, in fact, capable of altruism. Naturalistic social, con even with that assumption, naturalistic social contract theory encourages us to be egoistic by the consideration of rational self-interest alone. In other words, on social contract theory, we end up treating others and being treated by others as mere means and not by ends, not as ends, by the very nature of morality itself, right? So if you have a pure social contract framework and that's all that ethics is for you, and ethics is a matter of extending your own interest, you are necessitated then to treat other people as a means, as a mere means to your ends. And 
you're morally obligated to do so, right? Because what's moral obligation but the rational extension of your own interest, right? So that seems to be problematic. Religion provides a realistic remedy to this. By affirming the value and dignity of each person, we are more likely to aspire to treating others as we ourselves would like to be treated, namely as ends and not mere means. However, we can recognize from the perspective of religion that one net effect of original sin is that a segment of the population will always fail to do what is necessary. And the rest of us will frequently fail to do this. And here's where I think social contract theory does have a mark in its favor. Social contract thinking does, in these cases, provide a sort of social safety net to minimize the damages. I may not wish to treat another person with respect in a given instance, but my desire for the continued fulfillment of my desires saves me from doing anything too destructive. This sort of thinking keeps society minimally functional so that when I do choose to treat others as ends, and if I seek to act in a genuinely religious manner, I will choose to do so, so I can do so. In other words, let's maintain social contract theory as a baseline, that there's going to be people who are non-religious. So how do we convince them to work in a manner that's morally constructive for society as a whole? Well, that's what we use social contract thinking for. But we need to see that, that we should not view it exhaustively. That that's a fail-safe, that's a safety net, but we should hope for a greater segment of the population to have these more deeper moral motives based in religion, um, both for the sake of everyday morality, but also with the goal of ultimately treating one another with the dignity and respect appropriate to being human persons. In conclusion, I have left to the side the question of whether God is necessary for the justification of morality and instead focused on whether God and religion are necessary for adequate moral motivation, particularly in terms of social contract justification. I think that history has shown that some individuals are capable of acting in a minimally acceptable way without God and religion. However, there has not been a historical test of whether a wholly non-religious society can motivate itself sufficiently in the long run. We may have empirical results relevant to this question. We may have empirical relevant, start that one over. We may have empirically re relevant results to this question down the road, but at this point we can only speculate, and my argumentative speculation concludes that such a society would not survive. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.